In that moment, when I took the risk of saying, I think I might be becoming an atheist, and he said, if you become an atheist, I'll still be your friend no matter what. It was easier to believe in God at that second, because I think in the unconditional love of my friend, I felt that whatever we mean by God was made manifest in the genuineness of that friendship and commitment. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Brian McLaren. He has been a college English teacher. He was a pastor for 24 years, now an author, an activist, public theologian, and a frequent guest lecturer. He's a faculty member of the Living School at the Center for Action and Contemplation in New Mexico and lives in Florida. Brian, thank you so much for speaking with me in good faith. Thanks for having me. I have really fallen in love with this book, Faith After Doubt. And we'll talk about a brand new book, Do I Stay Christian, towards the end. But I do have some things that I just want to ask you about. I love how you organize this book. And you're, I think, pretty brave. You said, I structure this in three parts. In part one, Your Descent Into Doubt which not everyone would think, oh, what a comforting uh, devotional book. This this should be a a good read. Part two, All in Doubt, which sounds like uh, when everything falls apart. And then part three, Life After and With Doubt. And so my first question is, did you always feel like faith and doubt were opposites? Hmm. Well, I grew up in a very conservative religious setting where doubt was bad. It wasn't something you would admit. And so they they just didn't go together. And so I think it was a major struggle for me to ever realize that some of us, a friend of mine says, reflective people, people who think about our thinking, that doubt is just part of the way we live and that it would be impossible for us to do anything without second thoughts and without doubt and without questioning ourselves. So I think that in my own experience, faith and doubt have always been inseparable, but that ran up against what I had been told. Mm. So I've wondered if you can even have faith unless there's something you don't know that you have to exercise faith in. Yeah. This is where it really gets tricky. In fact, in the writing of Faith After Doubt, I came to understand more and take more seriously the social dimensions of doubt which makes me also have to take the social dimensions of faith more seriously. And what I mean by this is that there's a degree to which faith is always a team sport. And and the community that I'm part of, in a sense, there is a, a consensus. There's an agreement that among us in this building or among us under this label, there are things that we all treat as a fact. And what that does when you're in the group it makes it sound like you're not really dealing with faith, but you're dealing with certainty. In Mm. other words, the the social contract is a contract of let's act as if this were certainty. So anyway, your, your comment just makes me realize, yes, this is part of the challenge, isn't it? That even if we say we're talking about faith, which always has a dimension of unknowing to it, it often socially becomes certainty. So as a young pastor, you start going through a what you call a deconstruction of what do I really believe and kind of going through this process. And it sounds like at first 
No one wanted to hear this from their pastor, mm. which I yeah, think I can understand because if you are someone's <laughs> rock, maybe they are putting their faith maybe in you more than in where the, the faith is pointing to, to a higher yeah. power. Yes, I think that's true. I think, and I was always very careful about what I would say, you know, in a sermon, but I also felt an obligation to try to be honest. And because I grappled with my own questions and doubts and dissatisfactions with the standard explanations, I never wanted to shame people. I didn't want to do unto others what I wouldn't, wouldn't want done to me. So <laughs> what, what I tried to make room. Yeah, I tried to make room for, for doubters. But I think some people, because of that presumption, that social contract, that around here, we act as if these things are certain and unquestionable and undoubtable. I think that made some people very uncomfortable. I, it was like I was breaking an unwritten social taboo. Is some of that out of fear? For instance, I'm picturing a 17-year-old young man, young woman expressing to their parents some type of doubt, and maybe the parents even panicking like, oh, no, what does this mean for their life? Are they going off the rails? Yes, I think so. I think very often it has to do with fear. And I'm going to be really honest. I think in a situation like that, I think sometimes the fear even jumps beyond that to say, if my child were to question or doubt these things, what would this do to my status in my religious community that I have a child that's not carrying on the faith, you know? And there is a certain kind of fear that people have that I'll be looked down upon as not a true believer. And uh, yeah, it complicates things uh, Interesting. on many levels. Yeah, that's quite an insight that not just the person expressing doubt, but that fear that engenders about the person hearing that. Yes, as you've written this book and had time to have responses, and my understanding is that you had been speaking about this, and so people were coming to you. You, you, talk, yeah. you share several stories in this. It seems like you were almost helping create a community of people who want to believe in spite of the doubts that may come because of any particular given aspect of belief. Do you see people flocking to that? You know, there's a brilliant writer, really one of the sagely people I've met in my life named Parker Palmer. And Parker talks about a condition that a lot of us experience. He calls it living with inner division. And what he means by this is that many times we're part of groups where everyone else sees something a certain way, and we may have seen it that way too. And then we begin to change and we keep it a secret. And so we live with a division between how the inner us feels and how the outer us appears. So we continue to smile and we continue to shake our heads, but inside we're not smiling and we're not shaking our head. Mm. And when that division gets great enough and we sustain it for long enough, it begins to be a great burden, probably related to the idea of cognitive dissonance in, in psychology. But that dissonance and division is a heavy burden to bear. And Parker Palmer says, when someone has the courage to say, I will be divided no more, and they go public and say, let me tell you what I really think. They very often have the experience of people coming out of the woodwork and saying, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only mm -hmm. one. And there is this relief of other people who felt divided, who find each other. And that's certainly been a big part of my experience. You know, when I began to write, because I was a pastor, over the years, I had so many other pastors come to me and say, I thought I was the only one feeling this way. So <laughs> I've experienced that issue of divided no more, and then finding out 
you're not alone. I wonder if we think that once we have accepted faith at some point, usually early in our life, that mm-hmm. we think we're done, we're fixed, we have found the rock, so to speak, and, yeah. and there we will stay planted. But you have sort of developed four really memorable one-word definitions of what you call four stages of faith. Yes. Is that inevitable as we grow and we have more experiences that, that we will go through those stages to some degree? So actually, Steve, this is one of the reasons I love the name of your podcast, because to talk about something in good faith, I think what we're saying is, this is my honest faith at this moment in my life. Mm. And what I think happens to a lot of people is they're part of a group that shares a certain understanding of faith, and then they go through a transition. It might be great suffering. It might be a great education. It might be an experience of travel or something else. They have something that propels them into a new place. Mm. And in the language I use in Faith After Doubt, they might move from stage one, which I call simplicity, to stage two, which I call complexity. But if they have the feeling that people in their group won't accept them for being in this new place, then they have to keep translating everything or editing everything they say so that they won't stick out and not fit in. And there can come a point where you're different enough from where you started that you actually feel you're lying or you're deceiving people, you're hiding people. In fact, the word hypocrite has the, the, the meaning of an actor. You're putting on a mask. And so that experience of division can make you then start saying things you don't actually mean, and you lose good faith. At that point, you begin acting in bad faith. I'm just saying this not because I mean it, but because I need to say it to remain accepted among people. So that, that the idea of growing from one stage to another would be so natural if you were in a community that would allow you to do so. But if you were in a community that wouldn't, then you face this real temptation of, I maintain my status in the group with bad faith, or I risk being rejected in good faith. (laughs) That's a dilemma. That's a dilemma. Yeah. We are such social creatures. We need each other. Yes. Even as support in our belief. And then as you talk about complexity, I wonder if you talk about stage three. It seems to me that the end of stage two maybe is where we start to, as you talk about it, we start going into then, am I losing my mind? Or this is not good for my health to to think about all these things. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. That's right. So um, I, I call stage one the stage of dualism and authority figures. Dualism because everything is simple. Us, them, in, out, good, bad, friend, enemy, loyalist, rebel. You know, the world is very clearly defined in two categories. We move into complexity. The two categories don't work so well. So we have to have shades of gray in between the two extremes. The world becomes more complex, but we're still trying to make the old system work. But when we reach a point where we, the most honest part of ourselves is critiquing the whole system, at that point, we begin to move into stage three that I call perplexity. So you might say that stage one is dualism, stage two is pragmatism because we're just trying to make things work, get along, and so on. Stage three is a stage of critical thinking, skepticism, relativism. And very often, a simple way to define it is, In stage one and stage two, I criticize other groups. In stage three, I criticize my own group. 
the group that I actually feel I'm part of, and I'm beginning to question some of its assumptions. And that is a dangerous and stressful and difficult place to be where it's so dangerous for a lot of people that they do at some point just throw out good faith and accept bad faith to say, I don't know what I think, but I will say what people want me to say. I can't even bear to say, I don't know, or I'm having questions. I just have to keep the facade up, so to speak. But other people, they begin to dare in stage three to voice those questions. And very often that's when people start finding one another and they feel relieved and they wonder, is it possible for me, whatever their religion, is it possible for me to stay Christian or to stay Muslim or to stay Buddhist or whatever? Uh, Is it possible for me to stay when I have these questions? I remember some years ago, I overheard, or I actually was on the radio. I heard a debate between two Buddhists. And it was just so interesting for me from a Christian background to hear two Buddhists. And one of them was basically saying the other one wasn't a true Buddhist. And uh, (laughs) so you realize this isn't just a problem in one religion. This is a problem in many, many different groups. And even in professions, there are in groups and out groups uh, based on which school of your profession you you follow. And and many people, when they reach that stage three, it becomes so difficult and burdensome that they just say, I'm leaving my religion. I can't live there anymore. And when you understand their pain, you realize why they reach that conclusion. So simplicity, complexity, and I think you call stage three perplexity. Perplexity, yes. As you found yourself going through these stages and deciding to be open about it, which you actually did with someone in your congregation who was on the church council, and then they wanted to talk about this, and I think you were thinking, please don't (laughs) tell the church council, you know, I will be booted out, but you got a big surprise. Yes. This member of my council, we had a retreat of the leaders of our congregation. I was on staff and our lay leaders. And my friend, against my wishes, said in front of everyone, you know, Brian's asking a lot of questions. We have to decide whether this is his journey and his questions or whether we're also on this journey and these are our questions. And he wasn't saying it in a way that was hostile toward me. I think he was saying it because he felt like they were his questions and he wished that we would all just be on this journey of rethinking Mm. together. I didn't expect it to go this way, but by the end of that, that conversation, I found out that virtually all of the leaders in my congregation, they were having questions too, and they were open to looking for new ways of seeing things. And instead of me, I was keeping all of my questioning work for my books and my preaching work for the congregation. They basically invited me to bring my whole self to my work as a pastor, which was a blessing. And a lot of people don't have that blessing. Yeah, what a generous reaction and open and honest from those other members of the congregation. So as you're going through this journey personally, at any point, did you think to yourself, you know, this would just be easier if I just said, I'm not even going to worry about, is there a God? Is there not a God? Or was there some constant thing throughout all of that, some yeah. some connection to something divine? Yeah. So this is where it, you know, it, it's hard to talk about, even though I've written all these thousands of words about it in the book, it's hard <laughs> to talk about because on some level, I always felt there is something there. I'm just not sure that the words I use for it 
are the only right words to use for it. Interesting. And so I think part of the challenge for me was, I think this will make sense to you, Steve. I think it was, I wasn't necessarily losing faith. I was losing some of my beliefs or I was losing confidence in some of my beliefs, the ways I would talk about that deeper faith. The deeper faith in the sense in this sense was an openness to mystery and a desire to do what's right and a longing for depth and meaning. And I was open to whatever the source of that is and and very sincere about that. It wasn't like I was saying, I just want to get out of this business and go make a lot of money and you know buy a fast car. It wasn't that. It was, this is what matters to me. And it matters so much that I'm struggling with whether the words I'm using are the best way to talk about it. Does that make sense? I don't know. If Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to take a stab at a question that may not have the right words, yeah, but yeah. maybe you'll get the intent. Is there some sense of mission as you look back now thinking, well, God dragged me through a whole bunch of things so that now <laughs> I have the ability to minister to people who are being dragged through a whole bunch of things? Yes, very much so. Yes. Yeah. I think I'll just tell you a, a quick story about this. I, When I was a pastor, we had a lot of people in our congregation who had been part of the 12-step movement. So they were alcoholics, drug addicts of various sorts. And mm-hmm. um, I remember this woman came up to me one Sunday and she said, I'm so glad I found your church. She said, I went to church when I was a little girl, then I didn't, my parents stopped going. She said, and then I got pregnant when I was 17 and had a little girl. I always wanted to take her to church. She said, and here I am 34 and I never did it. And she said, but I heard that your church was accepting addicts. She says, you see, I've been an addict since I was 17. Mm. And she said, I heard your church was accepting addicts. And I thought, oh, finally, there's a place where I'm welcome. And what I felt she, she was saying resonated with so many other people I met, except instead of saying I was an addict, they would say, I couldn't buy what I was taught, or I had deep questions about what I was taught, or I would challenge some of the dogma. And they were searching for something, but they didn't think they were wanted anyplace. And I suppose I've always felt a desire to try to create a space for people who felt they weren't wanted and didn't fit. That sounds pretty biblical to me. There's a New Testament precedent for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I kind of think so. Yeah, but uh, you wouldn't know it sometimes. <laughs> Are there particular things, whether it's a practice or a meditation or a way of serving or um, just an awareness, something that connects you to God, mm-hmm. where you feel that connection the most or, or see God's hand working in your life? Yes. Well, through the years— I would say there are three or four different streams that have been that for me. Now, obviously, sometimes it's hearing a sermon, and sometimes it's singing a hymn, and sometimes it's partaking in a sacrament or something. Sometimes all of those things do what they're supposed to do, I think. But I would say one thing that has been a sustaining sort of point of contact for me and God has always been solitude, to be alone and be quiet to not be engaged. You know, I make my living writing. And for many years, I made my living talking. And I live in words. And we all live in words. And so to be alone and in silence, I feel that there's something about silence that 
the noise fades away and I'm able to, to in some way more deeply be in contact with God. Another, and this sounds like a cliche, but it's, it's honest and true for me, is the experience of, of the natural world to be in the wild, to be in the sort of architecture of trees and forests and rivers rather than buildings and windows and doors. And of course, that makes sense because if the universe is God's first language, if, if the universe is God's artwork, then of course, it would make sense that when we're most directly in contact. And then obviously, this is true too, in genuine encounter with human, with my fellow humans, when there's encounters that are not encounters where honesty and authenticity and trust happen. It just feels like, oh, yes, I know, of course, God is real. You mentioned this new book I have out that coming out in May. It's called Do I Stay Christian? And near the um, beginning of the book, I tell a story. And in fact, I hadn't seen the fellow this story is about in probably 20 years. I just saw him about two weeks ago for the first time. It was so good to be reunited with him. But when I was a college student and having deep questions and doubts, I said to him, I think I might be becoming an atheist. And he looked at me with just this kind smile. And he said, well, Brian, he said, I feel like I have enough faith for both of us. But if you end up becoming <laughs> an atheist, he said, I just want you to know it won't affect our friendship at all. And I, I think I can, I, I don't know if I can convey this, but <clears throat> in that moment, when I took the risk of saying, I think I might be becoming an atheist. And he said, if you become an atheist, I'll still be your friend no matter what. It was easier to believe in God that at that second, because I think in the unconditional love of my friend, I felt that whatever we mean by God was made manifest in the genuineness of that friendship and commitment. That's very beautiful and instructive, because perhaps you mm -hmm. may have shared those things with other people who either would have thought, how can I quickly fix Brian? Yes. Or, or thought for my own good. I need to distance myself. Yes. Yeah, I love hearing yes, about that open, charitable yeah. listening. Yeah. Maybe you just said it, but one of my questions here is what brings you the most joy in your faith life? Mm. I mean, all those things we just mentioned would be in that category, but I'll tell you something that is a very sincere answer and just happened earlier today. But the experience of learning something new always brings me phenomenal joy. And anytime I just feel like I never saw that before, it's always such a delight. And I was on an earlier interview, there were three interviewers, and one of them made a reference to a passage in the Bible. And he made an observation that was so obvious, but I'd never seen it before. I'd never thought of that before. And it just was fascinating, you know, just this feeling of delight, like, there's always more to learn. To me, that's that's the peak experience. <laughs> mm. Is there a way that as congregations, I suppose of any faith, but specifically in Christian denominations, is there a way we can make it okay to let people grow and make space mm. for that? You've written about some congregations want to stay in that stage one. It's all black and white. Yes. Uh, and some congregations maybe are in stage two, and they understand they're, or they're okay with expression yes. of a certain amount of nuance. Is there a way to create that welcoming that you have seen in a congregation or other congregations as you travel around? So I think it is. I think it has to be. But I think it's very difficult right now. 
Mm. And I think it's difficult now for very specific reasons. One of those reasons is that we're in a time of stress. You know, as a human civilization, we're not living in harmony with the earth. And on some level, we all know it. And so we know that our way of life, our whole economic system and civilization isn't working. And we know that we've got deep racial divisions and we've got deep political divisions. So we're all living with that certain amount of stress. And under stress, it's very tempting to just find a group of people who you can say we're right and everybody else is wrong. And in a way, we play into the worst characteristics of a stage one faith of simplicity then. Add to that, that when people are under stress, it is like open season for authoritarian leaders. One of the sentences that I I didn't put in faith after doubt, but I wish I had, (laughs) is that doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is the enemy of authoritarianism. And the way that authoritarian leaders, whether they're political or religious, the way that authoritarian leaders work is they create unity among us by creating an enemy them. And the them could be real or imaginary. Mm. The, 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 the them doesn't even need to exist. But if you can create fear among people, then they, in a sense, say, because we have such dangerous enemy, we need this leader to take charge. And they're willing to, in a sense, throw their trust toward authoritarian leaders. And whenever you have that kind of dynamic going on, it sucks everyone back into a stage one simplicity. And and of course, that can lead to some very ugly outcomes. But getting back to your question, Steve, what I think is possible, and I've seen it, and I think it can be even common in some settings, is we need communities that are actually led by people in stage four. Um, Which or you by call people at harmony. least I call harmony. Yes, and in harmony, what we do is we look at the people in simplicity and we say, "Good for you. You're in the stage where you should be, and there's a lot you're going to learn. Essential skills. And when you're ready, I'll do everything I can help you do to to grow into stage two. And when you're stage two, good for you. That's where you should be. There's things you learn during complexity that are essential skills for life. And as soon as you're ready, I can't wait to help you grow into perplexity because <laughs> perplexity is a good stage. And, and, and so the person who's leading from a stage four place helps people learn what's appropriate for them, but always lets them know there's something more to learn. And that kind of leadership, whenever you experience it, is empowering for you, whoever you are at wherever you are. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of our our religious communities have never been there. And they've always been at stage one, or they've always been at stage two, and they don't know how to help anybody beyond that stage. And so, you know, but there are places you see it. I, I actually think the stories I've heard about stage four most often, I think of stories I've heard from the Buddhist tradition where a young student wants to come and be part of a monastery. And the ways that the teacher or monk or whatever at the monastery teaches the student, they start where the student is at and what they're able to learn, but they always have so many more stages and steps for them to go. And that's the kind of leadership that I hope we can have more of in our faith communities. I would love to have a whole day to talk with you, (laughs) but I don't. So can we head into a little bit about, maybe I could just ask, what was the impetus? Why did you start writing this new book, Do I Stay Christian? 
Yeah. This sounds like well, this least, is a, a question you have been asked. Yes. In fact, I was just reading this morning in the 1990s, a huge demographic shift happened where if you were to take 18-year-olds in 1991 and compare them to 18-year-olds in 2001, over that 10-year period, we went from, I think it, it was certainly under 20%. And it might have actually been even under 10%. But the vast majority of people would say, I am of such and such a religion. Right. In that 10-year period, 30% of young adults said, I don't affiliate with any religion. I mean, that is a staggering amount of change in 10 years. And I think that's continued in the years since. And people often refer to this as the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, or the spiritual but not religious. So yes, I see so many Christians who are struggling with this. And in the terms we just talked about, the way I would say it is that when more and more people grow through stage one and through stage two, and they enter stage three, they can't find a spiritual community that wants them, that has a place for them and their questions. And so they, they think, I can't stay Christian anymore. Um, and I'm sure there's counterparts. I'm, I'm sure in some Muslim communities, similar things happen and so on. So there are a lot of people entering stage three and even entering stage four who just think they don't really want people like me. Is there a place for me? And, and so a lot of people are asking this, yes. How do you answer the question? So what I do in the book, <laughs> the book is not an attempt to persuade people to stay Christian, and it's not an attempt to urge people to leave Christianity. The book has three parts. Part one is no. <laughs> and I give 10 <laughs> chapters on the best reasons I'm aware of to leave Christianity. The second part is called yes. And I ask the question, is it possible knowing those first 10 chapters and those sort of dark sides of Christianity that are often hidden, is it possible to say yes and stay a Christian? And so that's what those next 10 chapters explore. At the end of that second part, I say, you know, whether you stay Christian or not, you've got to figure out how you're going to live. Let's talk about that. So that's what the last third of the book is about. So the answer, do I stay Christian, is yes, no, and how. (laughs) (laughs) Brian, is there something I should have asked you that I don't know to ask that you'll think, oh, we should have gone here or there? Your questions were fantastic. That was a pleasure. Just such great questions. Thank you so much. Brian McLaren, author of the book we're talking about today, Faith After Doubt, and a new book I'm looking forward to reading myself once it comes out next month from when we're recording this, Do I Stay Christian? Thank you for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you. So good to be with you. Thanks to author and teacher Brian McLaren for generously sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and spread the word by leaving a five-star comment or review where you get your podcasts. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.